Good to see you here at our brand new teaching series uh, this evening. And uh, we're talking a little bit more about that, but I want to firstly bring you greetings from our senior minister, Colin Dye. As you regulars know, he has been in Brazil the last couple of weeks or so, and uh, they've been having a great time with conferences, cell conferences outside Sao Paulo. With 4,000 people are at that with key leaders from Brazil. And now uh, Colin has moved to Recife. Uh, regulars, again, know that we have very strong links with Brazil as a church, and mainly through the ministry of our senior minister over the years. Uh, we have a number of Brazilian churches right here in London and ministries, and, and we are pioneering new churches out there in Brazil. And the latest one that we are pioneering is in Recife, and it's right on the borders of the flavelas, the, uh, the poor slum area. And uh, as well as preaching the gospel, uh, that church is feeding the young children, putting shoes on their feet and clothes on their back. And it really is a powerful pioneering work right at the heart of that city. And more churches are going to uh, come out of that. So do keep Colin in your prayers that everything the Lord wants him to accomplish in this apostolic trip that he's making is accomplished. And he will be returning. He will be with us next Sunday morning at the 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock, and he'll be able to fill us in with all the good things that the Lord is doing in Brazil. So uh, just to bring him greetings and keep you up to date with him, pray for him. Let's God's will be done through our ministry out there. Amen? Amen. Wonderful. And uh, if, you, uh, got, if you're free this evening, I know it's bank holiday uh, tomorrow, but if you're free this evening, why don't you stay and join us for our revival service I got a feeling that we're going to blow the roof off tonight. I just got a little feeling. I may be wrong, but I got a little feeling we're going to blow the roof off tonight. And I'm going to be ministering on springs in the desert. Springs in the desert. So we're believing God for a move and transformation and reformation of people's lives. Well, it's good that you're here because you've come to hear the greatest sermon that has ever preached from the greatest preacher that has ever preached. No, not me by a long shot. But the greatest sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, by the greatest preacher that ever preached, Jesus Christ himself. I hope you've got your Bibles with you because you will need them over the course of these next six weeks. And if you have them, just have them ready at Matthew chapter 5, where this great sermon begins. And it is a great sermon. It's a monumental sermon. And to be honest with you, it's not given the attention that it deserves by modern Christians today. Not at all the attention that it deserves in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the key to your Christian living. Many of you know that recently uh, I published a book called No More Law. And in that book, we deal with the fact that we're no longer under the law of Moses. No, not one little bit at all in any way, shape, or form. But we are the children of Abraham who lived 430 years before there was any law, before there was any Ten Commandments. If you'd gone up to Abraham and asked him to name one of the Ten Commandments, he'd have simply looked at you blankly and said, the Ten what? He lived by faith and relationship with the Father. And in that book, I explain that we no longer live by the law, but we are freed from the law so that we can live by the Spirit. 
And so we're looking for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, uh, patience, these things, steadfastness in our lives. We're looking for these things. And we live by the new commandment. Remember Jesus and he said, I have come to give you a new commandment that you would love one another as I have loved you. And so we're not looking, and some people say, well, if, you, if you're saying that we're no longer under the law of Moses, then how do we know how to live? How do we know what's right and wrong? At least with the Ten Commandments, you can at least try to obey them. At least with the moral part of the Mosaic law, you can look at it and say, this is right and this is wrong, and, but you're saying there's no more law. So how do we live if we don't have the law? Well, we live by the Spirit, but also there's many ways. We, we look at the example of Jesus' life. We said we, we look at the fruit of the Spirit and, and whether we're bearing that in our lives. But one of the greatest things that we can look at is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the way that Jesus wants us to live, free from the law. And uh, let, let me give you a quote from a, a famous preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, do you remember that we had Dr. R.T. Kendall with us recently? Well, Dr. R.T. Kendall, and he has written a very recent book, and I recommend it to you, a very recent book on the Sermon on the Mount in the last year. Well, he was mentored by a man called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the preacher at Westminster Chapel just a while before him. And Martin Lloyd-Jones has also written an excellent book on the Sermon on the Mount. It's amazing that they both feel that the Sermon on the Mount is that important, that they've both written important books about it. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about the Sermon on the Mount. If you take the trouble to read the lives of the saints down the centuries... And the men who have been most greatly used of God, you will find that every time they have been men who have taken the Sermon of the Mount not only seriously, but literally. We could say women of God as well. Not only serious. So in other words, he's saying if you look at the men and women of revival, the men and women used by God, they have taken the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount seriously and literally. They have lived it. And that's why God has used them so powerfully. We're going to look at introduction into the Sermon on the Mount today because you can't just dive in. You have to understand where this Sermon on the Mount is coming and what the broad strokes of this before in these next six weeks we begin to apply this to our lives and see transformation and change and begin to live, if we're not already, the life that God has set for us to live. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is so well known, especially in society. You know, even non-Christians use phrases that are often found in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you, you can hear on the media, even today, phrases like this, turn the other cheek. Or, our Father who art in heaven, that prayer is known so well. Uh, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. No one can serve two masters. Judge not, lest you be judged. And don't throw your pearls to swine. How about narrow is the gate? Or wolves in sheep clothing? Or by your fruit you will know them? Or don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing? Love your neighbor and uh, uh, let your yes be yes and your no 
be no, and you are the salt of the earth. You know, this isn't just familiar to Christians. You can hear people who aren't even Christians using these in their common language. You can hear this in the media. These phrases are often still used in newspaper articles. And some people don't even know where these phrases come from. But it shows what an effect they have that even non-Christians have been schooled in them. It's interesting when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, and I will be coming back to this, when we know that our own Prime Minister... David Cameron very recently spoke, gave a message to the church in general of Great Britain and asked us to continue to preach morals. And many politicians will come to the Sermon on the Mount and they will pick little bits out of it. And they will say, oh, well, these are good moral teachings. Often they'll say, I'm a Christian with a small c. What does that mean? It means they're not born again, but they're like some of the teaching that Jesus has done. Love your neighbor as, as yourself. Uh, don't judge. Turn the other cheek. They think these are wonderful teachings, and you don't need to be a Christian to enjoy these teachings. And like David Cameron said, you keep teaching this moral You keep teaching these good things. Keep teaching it to our society so that everybody can hear and adopt these good moral teaching, mainly from the Sermon on the Mount, and then that will help our nation. Do you know what? Nothing could be further from the truth of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It is not simple moral teaching for everybody. In fact, you can only begin to interact with the Sermon on the Mount if you're born again and spirit filled. And so when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, people often dive in too quickly. Or what they do, they will pick out one verse. You often hear people quoting from the Sermon on the Mount. But how many people have actually studied the Sermon on the Mount in context? If I preached a sermon to you and you just recorded little bit of sentences of it, or maybe two minutes here or three minutes there, and said, look, I would say, wait a second, I don't want you just quoting a a, a segment here or a segment there. I crafted this sermon. There's an introduction. And if you don't understand the introduction, how can you understand the conclusion? Uh, There is a progression. The whole of a sermon, when you preach a good sermon, it's meant to be crafted by the Spirit. You're meant to be, when you listen to a good sermon, there is a beginning, a middle, and an end. There is a thought profile. A good sermon is a journey. But so many people, when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, they just break it up into little bits. Here's a little bit, there's a little bit. And we're not going to do that. We're going to let the sermon that Jesus preached on that mount, the greatest sermon by the greatest preacher, over these next six weeks, we're going to allow this sermon to minister to us as a whole. We're going to start at the start, we're going to finish at the end, and we're going to feel, probably for the first time for most of you, you're going to feel the full impact of the greatest sermon ever preached. Now we can see here in uh, Matthew chapter 5 where it begins, and and we're going to go through in general today and, and get a feel of this, that Jesus, seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain... And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. He went upon the mountain. Uh, Some people, when they look at the Sermon of the Mount, they say, well, wait a second. Who is Jesus preaching this sermon to? Is he preaching to Christians? Is he preaching to Jews under the law? Is he preaching to everyone, whether they're Christians or not? Who is Jesus preaching 
this sermon to? Well, some people, and I know some people who have taught and written in their books, and they say that Jesus, when he teaches and preaches the Sermon on the Mount, they say this, he's not even preaching to Christians at all. They say that when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was speaking to the Jews that were under the law. That what Jesus was doing was simply taking the law of Moses and applying it as it should be in the perfect understanding of it to the Jews of the time. So where you see verses later on, and we'll come to all these, you know, where it says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone that lusts after a woman in his heart has already committed it. You have heard it said, do not commit murder, but anybody that has hate in his heart for his neighbor has already committed murder. And they say, you see, Jesus is teaching the law. And there were many different teachers at that time and many different interpretations at that time about what the law meant and what it meant to live it. There was different schools, the school of Hillel and the school of Gamaliel that Paul was part of. And they had different interpretations of, of the law. And so some scholars and some preachers, when they look at the Sermon on the Mount, they say, well, do you know what? It's not for a Christian. It's not for you at all. This, this is the law. Jesus is speaking to the Jews under the law. And, and, and we, have, we have finished with the law. And we're in the New Testament era now. And the Sermon on the Mount, they say and dismiss it, does not really apply to Christians at all. You'll find that this is actually a more popular view than you might imagine in present-day Christianity and amongst so-called grace preachers, of which I count myself one. The gospel is one of grace. But so-called grace preachers will often dismiss the Sermon of the Mount. Some people say the Sermon on the Mount uh, is, is, is just for that period of the Jews. And also, when they look at the end times, when they say that the church has been raptured, and God comes to finish with the Jews, the Sermon on the Mount will apply again. Well, I totally disagree with this view of the Sermon on the Mount, that it is for those that are under the law, that somehow Jesus is ministering to those that are to follow the law. I don't believe it's that at all. So, who is the Sermon on the Mount targeted at? Well, we see this in the verse that I just read, chapter 5, verse 1. He went up with his disciples, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. This sermon is for disciples. You know, when you believe in the gospel, it's such a simple thing to be saved. Such a simple thing. All you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead and you are saved. You don't have to do anything to get saved. You don't have to do anything to keep saved. Jesus did everything to save you. And Jesus is doing everything to keep you saved. That's his job. You're a believer. But a disciple is something different. It's a believer that begins to say, I want to follow my master. I don't just believe in the gospel. I want to live the gospel. I want to be a disciple. And here at Kensington Temple, under the vision of our senior minister, we take discipleship very seriously. Discipleship is the number one thing in our ministry. At least that's what we want it to be. Souls 
and cells. Seeing people consolidated in the ministry. Not just hands lifted to give their lives to the Lord and then lost forever. Or not just people that become Christians and at most we hope they'll attend one of the Sunday services. But we want to see people grow in the image of Christ. Follow Christ. Become a disciple. Make other disciples. Become such a disciple that they will become a leader among disciples. And so the Sermon on the Mount is for people that seriously want to follow Jesus. That aren't just saying, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Now I'm going to do whatever I want to do. But people that say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. I'm so grateful for what you've done for me. I want to follow you. The Sermon on the Mount is for all those that want to follow Jesus. And I'm excited that you're here today because in your heart, that's what you're saying. Lord, I want to follow you. But how do you follow Jesus? Again, so many Christians don't really have a clue of how they're meant to live their lives. Often Christians, maybe not so much here, but often Christians, outside Sunday, you would never think they were any different than believers, than non-believers. I heard, I don't know if it's still true, but I heard praise speaking this morning about the fact that the divorce rate is as high in the world as it is in the church. I don't know if that's true, but, but even if it was remarkably near, then something's wrong. You know, single uh, Christians getting pregnant as well as single non-Christians getting pregnant. Something's wrong. People don't know how to live their Christian lives. And maybe as a Christian, you pick up a little bit here, you pick up a little bit there, you hear conferences, and on those conferences, usually it's about you being successful. Conferences, attractive conferences today are me-focused, how I can get stronger in the anointing, how I can prosper, how I can be successful, how I can get my partner, how I can get, I can get, I can get. And so if we continue to do this in the charismatic church, what type of people do we breed? We breed consumers rather than disciples. And when we look over, this, over these next six weeks at the, the, uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, you are going to find it is not focused on consumers. It is focused on disciples. It confronts you at the heart of your living, your choices, your reactions, your responses, your actions. All of these things are part of following Jesus. Uh, Again, let me uh, refer to... um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and this is what he does when he sums up what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. He says this, the Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord called the new commandment, that we love one another as he has loved us. You know, we don't need no Mosaic law. The The law's finished. We're like Abraham. We live without the law. But there is a commandment. There is a commission and a commandment. And these are the things that we must focus on. The great commission, go into all the world and make disciples. Okay, but what kind of disciples? What kind of disciples are they that we should become? And what kind of disciples should we be making? The great commission, make disciples. The new commandment, 
is the kind of disciples we should be and we should make. This is my new commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus, uh, Paul says that in a different way. He says that in Galatians um, chapter 5, he says, love your neighbor as yourself, and you fulfill the law. You don't need the law if you love your neighbor. And then later on in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, he says it in another way. He says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's only one law that we love. Bear one another's burdens. And then also, as we'll find in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it said again, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is simply examples and illustrations of that one command. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, as, as we go through the different parts, you're going you're to say any time as we slice through the cake of this wonderful sermon and feast on it, you're going to find love one another. Love one another. Love God and love one another. It's, it's Jesus unpackaging the commandment. So if we get the commission right, we're here to make disciples. And we get the commandment right, the disciples that we're meant to make are to be loving ones. Then we can go to the sermon and unpackage this. And this is important. You see, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount thinking it's a bunch of moral laws, you've missed it. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount thinking it's for everybody, the non-born again and the born again, it's just some nice rules and regulations, you've missed it. But if you go to the Sermon on the Mount and you say this, Lord, you've called us to love one another as you have loved us, how do we do that? Have you ever thought, how do you love one another? I think this is one of the central questions that we need to answer in our hearts if we're going to see revival. Because Jesus said this, didn't he? By this they will know that you are my disciples, that you speak with other tongues. Uh, by this they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. It is what a disciple is all about. But the question is, what is love? How do we love one another? All Christians know that love is the answer. God is love, and this is love, that God sent his only son for a propitiation for our sins. And the great epistle of 1 John is all there talking about love. But I find that in practice, few of us really can grasp what this loving is all about. It seems nice. Is it an emotion? Is it the gooey, gooey love? Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together. Give me a hug. Amen. Amen. Is it, is it gooey, gooey love? What is it? What is this love? And is this love, is it a doormat? Is it like the doormat where you go out and you say, I love you, and then someone takes advantage of your kindness, and you find yourself all beaten up, and you become a Christian doormat? And the lack of understanding what it means to love one another and to love the world, the lack of understanding means that people really gently just put the command to love on the side because they think, if I do it, it'll all go wrong for me. How do I genuinely love and be successful? How do I genuinely love and get through life? Does loving work? Not many of us don't think that it does. 
We'll be nice, we'll be kind, but when we start seeing some of the things that the Sermon on the Mount talks about, God, Jesus says, even forget loving your neighbor. That, that's taken for red. It's easy to love your, love your friends. Love your enemies. <laughs> so not only are we asked to love those that like us, we're told to love our... Well, how does that work? How does that work? All these things. To understand what it means to love, to be a disciple who walks in love, it's all there, unpackaged in the Sermon on the Mount with examples and illustrations explaining how we draw the love of the Father in our lives to do these. This is spirit-filled living based on love. This is what the, the sermon is all about. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of spirit-filled living. You will see in times of revival that people literally live the precepts and principles of the Sermon on the Mount. They are Sermon on the Mount Christians. It is a perfect picture of the kingdom of God. The perfect picture of God's work in our lives. I mean, when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, and I hope you're going to read it after, I'm just, I'm just really getting you hungry for it. Do you know what? Sometimes when you just give somebody a meal, they don't, they don't, take, they, you know, they don't realize what you're giving them. You know, when I cook a meal at home, because I do cook at home, do you know that? Yes, you can come over one day. I do cook at home. I love cooking. I've always cooked. I never gave my wife a chance to cook, actually, because I love cooking. I'm, I am a good husband. But, I, but all right, before you, before you clap, um, I'm good at cooking, but I don't like cleaning up afterwards. My wife, Nicola's very good at that. And, you know, when I've cooked something very special and the guests come in, they don't just get it on their plate. They have a description of what kind of beef this is. It's not just a normal beef. This didn't come out of the yellow section in Tesco's. This came out of the silver section. You know what I'm saying? And so I talked, and, and I explained to them. Why? Because you know, I remember once a friend of mine who was on this ministry team and shall remain nameless, when I cooked a wonderful beef in beautiful red wine sauce, and it was perfectly seasoned, and put it on his plate. And before he'd even tasted it, he took the pepper jar and just started... I had to love my enemy for about three weeks. What I'm saying is, is that when you go to a top-class restaurant, stop heckling me, stop heckling me. Shoes, remove that woman. No, I'm joking, it's all right. It's just Marcy, it's all right, she's allowed to heckle. And what I'm saying is that if you go into a top-class restaurant, you anticipate the meal you're gonna get, don't you? You expect something, you're hungry for it, you anticipate it, and you value it. Whereas if you think it's just something, you know, from the freezer that, you know, and someone just gives it to you, and you can eat it, and you cannot know what you're dealing with. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest preaching food that you could ever eat. You talk about Jesus saying, man does not live by bread alone. The Sermon on the Mount is the choicest of spiritual food for you to eat. And I want you to know that because so many people are so, uh, uh, what's the word? They, they, they treat the Sermon on the Mount so commonly. They don't realize the power within it. If you sit back and read the Sermon on the Mount and imagine a people living it. Imagine a community living the principles 
Imagine as you go, as you go, we go through the Sermon on the Mount, as you read it, because I know you're going to read it after today. I know you are, because I haven't read it. I just did the sermon. But I know, because if I read it, you won't read it. But if I keep talking about how great this meal is, I know that all of you are going to read it today. I just know it. And imagine, when you read it, imagine a community that lived like this. We look at the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Imagine a person like that. Imagine as we go through it, and you're going to say, wow, this is amazing. I often say this also about the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, it talks about the spirit-filled living, that we don't live by law, but love and the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is compared, isn't it, with the works of the flesh. And I always say to people, I said in my book, and I'll be teaching on this in depth when we start on the book of Galatians on Thursday in this evening's diploma. I say, compare the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Imagine the works of the flesh and imagine a community that is uh, known by the works of the flesh. What a horrible place to be envying, all manners of sexual perversions, fighting, and I dot. Imagine, you read the works of the flesh, and imagine a community based on that, horrifying. But you think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, generosity, all of these things. Imagine that you walked into a church or a group of people, and you said, all I saw was love, patience, forgiveness, generosity, all I saw was joy. Isn't that, it, that's something that you want. Well, when you read the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and do you imagine being like that? Imagine a community like that. That is revival, my friend. So the Sermon on the Mount isn't about anybody being under the law. You couldn't do it by the power of the law. You couldn't do it by the power of willpower. This is a spirit-filled kingdom-filled group of people. And it's not like this, as some people have thought. It's not like, live like this. Live like the Sermon on the Mount, and you will become a Christian. Some people teach like that. That if you live like the Sermon on the Mount teaches, then you will become a Christian. But that's not it at all. No. Because you are a Christian, live like this. Okay, so don't look at the Sermon on the Mount and think, I have to do these things or I won't get into heaven. I have to do these things to be accepted by Jesus. It's my new laws. No, 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 no. You can't live like that. There's no condemnation in the Sermon on the Mount. But come to the Sermon on the Mount and says, this is what I was born again to do. You know people, and as they grow they, and they find a career or their giftings and someone might be a singer and they say, do you know I was born to sing? Or someone plays a sport and says, I was born to play tennis. Or I was born to teach. Or I was born to be a business. Well, if you're born again, this is what you're born again to do. To live the Sermon on the Mount. The new birth. I mean, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and it starts with the Beatitudes. You see it there, chapter 5. We'll be looking at this in detail next week. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. As you begin to go through this characteristics of a spirit-filled Christian, when you look at this, it is impossible to live the Beatitudes and become that person without the grace 
and the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. You can't do it. You can't live the Sermon on the Mount by your own efforts. You can only do it by the Holy Spirit, by yielding to the Holy Spirit, by letting Him work through the Word and His promptings in your life. And if you want to expect blessing, I bring you to the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we like blessing sermons. I like sermons that bless me. I like sermons that are going to bring blessing into my life. If you want real, authentic blessing, you'll find it in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, blessed are the poor, blessed are the mourning, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the persecutors. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Jesus knows how we tick. And right at the beginning of his sermon, he's saying, you want to be blessed? You want the road, the direct road to blessing. I'll tell you the direct road to blessing. It's not tithing. The direct road to blessing is not prayer alone. The direct road to blessing is living the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me move on a little bit. The Sermon on the Mount also addresses something that I suppose I've been alluding to earlier. The Sermon on the Mount addresses what authentic Christianity is all about. What is an authentic Christian? What is authentic Christianity? The Sermon on the Mount gives us the picture of an authentic disciple an authentic Christian. If you want to know what a real Christian, I mean a, a real Christian is like, study the Sermon on the Mount with me in the coming six weeks. Christ died and sent his spirit so that you might live the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm going to move on in the, in the last section of this sermon, this introductory sermon, because I want to give you a feel of the Sermon on the Mount. I've given you an introduction to the importance of the Sermon on the Mount, what it is and what it, what it isn't, who it is being preached to and who it is not being preached to. But it's important that we see an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. I've already said that some people just dive into the Sermon on the Mount, quote the famous bits. That's not good enough. We have to take the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. And this sermon was not just preached once. It was a constant theme of Jesus' preaching. Don't fall into the rigid thinking that you think that Jesus only ever told a parable once. Or that he only ever had a saying once. Or that he only preached a sermon once. No, he was going around, wasn't he, the towns and the villages. And each village would need to hear the parables of the kingdom afresh. Jesus was constantly repeating the central parts of his message, constantly. That's why in some of the Gospels you see variations in his sayings and his parables. Why? Because he was constantly teaching them. Every preacher knows that the best sermons that God gives them are not just for one Sunday. But you reshape them by the Spirit. You bring them again and again. And in different circumstances, God will lead you to focus on different aspects of them. You'd be a foolish preacher to be given a pearl from God and show it to the people once and never again. So therefore, when we think about Luke chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Plain, with the same basic context but slightly different, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor, and he doesn't finish it. It's not that Matthew and Luke are disagreeing on what 
Jesus preached, it's just he preached it so many times. It depends how you made your notes and which sermon and which village and which town you were at on the mount or on the plain when you heard it. Now, the first thing I want to say is that when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it reminds me actually a lot of the epistles that Paul wrote or the letters that Paul wrote. Because Paul in his letters, for example, immediately springs to mind not only Galatians but Ephesians, Paul will often bring teaching first and then application. Teaching. Think of Ephesians. You have that great teaching of who you are in Christ. But then he applies it to your daily lives and your living. Think of Galatians. You get all of that wonderful teaching about the law and faith and justification. But there in chapter 5 and 6, it gets right down to what you do with somebody that falls into sin. Right down to how to bring an offering to God. It gets practical. It's, it's teaching, then application. It's doctrine and then deduction. And you will find exactly the same thing here in the um, Sermon on the Mount. So let's see how Jesus brought this sermon to us. And this is going to really set us up. It's not only going to bring teaching to us today, but it's going to set us up for where we are going on this journey. We see that, like I said about the epistles that start with doctrine and then deduction or teaching and then application... So here, in the Sermon on the Mount, it starts with the general and then goes into the particular and the examples. And it begins in the general, and if you look here from verse 3, get your Bibles out, blessed are the poor in spirit, you could make a mark there if you had a pen. This is the general from verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, to verse 16, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This section from verse 3 to verse 16, this is the general. The general, it's an introduction. And then after these first 16 verses, what Jesus does is begin to give you specific examples and illustrations. The first 10 verses of chapter 5 are all about the character of a spirit-filled Christian. The character of a spirit-filled filled Christian, verses 1 right through to 10. And they're what we call the Beatitudes. Again, there we are, blessed are these. And you see the characteristics, starting with poor in spirit. When we look at this next week, we'll be looking that the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, before you can even begin to look anything, or even begin to live anything, you have to be poor in spirit. And I won't go into what my teaching is next week, but let me say this. Being poor in spirit is knowing your need of God. Knowing you need to be saved. Knowing you actually need the Holy Spirit. This poverty of spirit, this knowing that you need to be born again and that you need to rely on the Spirit, is the key to living the Christian life. And this is why liberal theologians and liberal Christians are so wrong. When they seek to to miss out this bit, and go straight into the do unto others and all these things and say, well, here's some nice moral principles for everybody, whatever religion you're in. You don't qualify to even begin the Sermon of the Mount unless you're poor in spirit. So here we see this character of the Christian, verse 3 to 10. What is the characteristics of a spirit-filled Christian? That's what we'll be looking at next Sunday. What does it mean to walk the road of true blessing, 
And then in verse 11 to 12, this section is very interesting because Jesus has said, this is the characteristic of a Christian, the type of person that is blessed. Then in verse 11 and 12, he is talking about the reaction of the world to such a spirit-filled Christian. You know, when you're on fire for God, you're going to get a reaction. When you're not on fire for God, you're not going to get a reaction. The world's not going to react to the world in the church. In fact, often the world just laughs at the church because it sees so much of itself in the church. Why would it want to wear religious robes? The, church will, the, the world will not react or respond to the worldliness of a Christian or a church. So a worldly Christian has absolutely no impact at all in any way in their society amongst their people. A worldly Christian doesn't get people saved. A worldly people doesn't make people sit up and think. A worldly Christian does none of these things. They, are, they have no power in the world at all because they, they, are, they are worldly. But a spirit-filled Christian will get a reaction. A spirit-filled Christian won't be loved by everyone. Because in these days, you know, often it concerns me in the Church of Britain how often we seek not to offend. Now, we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, we don't seek to offend. We're not out to be offensive. But the gospel in itself is offensive. And the lifestyle that we're going to talk about is an outstanding, radical lifestyle that is going to be noticed by everybody around. So we are going to be offensive. But we're going to be offensive because we're so full of Jesus, so full of love, not so full of being, you know, religious and offensive. And then in verse 13 and 16, having looked at the reaction in verse 11 and 12 to the character of a Christian, in verse 13, and, um, well, 13, sorry, to 16, this is the relationship of a spirit-filled Christian to the society that they're in. This type of spirit-filled Christian is indeed the salt of the earth. This type, the one who's the Beatitudes, the blessed, this type of Christian that lives these characteristics, that puts these characteristics at their center of their living and following of Jesus, not only will they get a certain kind of reaction, but they become salt. What is salt? It's a preservative to become, become salt in the decaying meat of society. And not just salt, but light. Light. And uh, a city on a hill. Let your light shine before men, verse 16, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Now, verse 17, we'll be coming to this, we begin to get into the particular. We've had what a Christian character is like. We're going to unpackage that next week. We've seen the reaction of the world to such a Christian and disciple of Jesus. And we've seen our place in society. We're salt, we're light, and we shouldn't hide our light. We should just let it shine. But here in verse 17, we see Jesus, and, and from verse 17, we begin to see illustrations and examples of how such a Christian life in a world will live. Because so far we've seen the basic principles, we haven't seen, this is where we're going, but we've seen the basic principles of the character of a spirit-filled disciple of Jesus. The reaction to that character and who we are in the world, we're salt, we're light. But now we're going to say, well, I would say, well, Lord, can you give me some examples? How do we put this into practice? 
And Jesus then takes us into examples and illustrations, not rules and regulations. Listen to me. Examples and illustrations, not rules and regulations. It's like Jesus saying, well, this is the type of person you'll be in this situation and that situation. This is the type of person you'll be. This will be your type of responses. They're not laws. They're illustrations. And in verse 17, Jesus says, and this will be a very powerful, I hope, a very powerful teaching that I'll bring to you. Jesus says, do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth passes away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The key verses or the key words that will come to in these two verses is this, fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill. I won't go into it now, but when something has fulfilled its purpose, what use of it anymore? Nothing. When something has fulfilled its purpose... It's of no use for any more. So what Jesus is saying, he's yet to, to, to have lived his life fully under the law. He's yet to be sacrificed on the cross. So what he's saying is this. I haven't come to destroy the law. No, I've come to fulfill the law. In fact, heaven and earth's not going to pass away until everything the law was brought to do is done. And when Jesus said on the cross, it was finished, he was also saying, the law is fulfilled. It's fulfilled its purpose. It's no longer needed. And then he begins to talk about a righteousness that exceeds those of the Pharisees. A righteousness that fulfills the law. The law is a second-rate righteousness. A second-rate way of living. And we'll go through this passage and we'll, we'll look that, that, God, that Jesus is saying, look, it's all about the heart. the heart. The Pharisees was all about the outward action. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He says, you know, on the surface, you look perfect. On the surface, you look like you are followers of God. And if people just look at your surface, wow, what a wonderful follower of God you are. You're whitewashed. But I know your heart. I know what's going on on the inside of you. And God, as we will see in the Sermon on the Mount, deals with the issues of the heart. Not with external things, but internal. And Jesus said, look, you may not commit adultery, but what's going on in your heart? You may not hurt somebody or kill somebody, but what's going on in your heart? You, you, you may come and bring a gift to the altar, but what's going on in your heart with your brother and your, and, and your sister? He's dealing with the issues of the heart. And so we, we're going to see these examples of how we're going to live, the type of examples that a believer will live. This is not the new Ten Commandments. It's about the Spirit, not the letter. And then... Chapter 6 is, is an amazing chapter because after we've had these illustrations of what the Spirit-filled life is like, the reactions, the issues of the heart, in chapter 6, it is life lived in the presence of your Father. Because in the end, that's what the Christian life's powers comes from. You must be like a child to receive the kingdom of God. John in his letters says, little children 
children of God. Do you know there are no adults in the kingdom of God? If there are, they're backslidden (laughs) because we're all meant to be children. You know, the little that I'm learning from God is this. It's all about trust issues. It's just about trusting. It's about taking his hand and simply, like a child, and it's not an easy thing to do, trust him. And so chapter 6, Jesus goes, I've looked at the issues of the heart. It's internal, not external. Deal with the heart on the inside, the spirit's work. But then he says, but also, it's reaching out to the Father. And look, you'll see, this, you'll see in this, in, verse, in chapter 6, just look at the type of topics which illustrate what I'm talking about. He talks about doing your charitable deeds, not before men, but before your Father in secret. He talks about when you pray, in verse 6, go into your room, shut the door with your Father. Don't vain repetitions like the others do in public. Don't worry about that. Your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask. Here, pray, our Father in heaven. And forgive others' trespasses, in verse 14, and your heavenly Father will keep you walking straight and narrow. Don't fast like the hypocrites outwardly, but when you fast, keep it quiet and your Father in the secret place. Don't lay up yourselves treasures on earth, but in heaven where your heart is and your Father is. You can't serve two masters. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap, yet your heavenly Father. Can you, isn't this amazing? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Why are you worrying? Consider the lilies of the field. God clothes the grass of the field. He's your Father. Your heavenly Father, verse 32, knows what you need. Don't worry. Wow. Incredible. The character of a Christian. The reaction to a character of a spirit-filled Christian. Our place in the world. The, the attitudes of the heart, not the external things. And then a whole section on walking with your Father. And then the final introductory thing that I want to talk about here is in chapter 7. And chapter 7 is one of the greatest missing links in the Christian spirit-filled walk of disciple in the church in the West today. It is the teaching of the honor, reverence, and fear of the Lord by the believer. Honor. There is very little honor, reverence, and fear of the Lord in the Western church today, and especially the charismatic church. We've just had a chapter about Daddy God, haven't we? I've just gone through it. We're going to spend time there. Trust your dad. Trust your father. Don't think about what others are thinking. Think about what your father is thinking. Your father, your father, your father, your father. He's there for you, our father. It's wonderful, the intimacy. But then in verse 7, it's like the Lord says, but remember who your father is key to the Christian life, the fear. Now, when I say fear, it's not the negative fear. It's the fear of Proverbs. It's the respect. It's like, my goodness, not only is he my Abba, he is the Lord and sovereign God of everything. It's time to take our shoes off. It's time we can, he's our, you know, he may be my daddy, but he's also the king of the universe. And he's my king. And, then, and, and it's like, don't treat the things of God lightly just because he's your father. Judge not, lest you, the child of the father, 
be judged. With the judgment you give, God will judge you. He's not messing around. If anybody's been here and has messed with God, you know he has his way of chastising his children. Oh, he can be tough on his kids. Whom the Lord loves, he's as tough as nails on. And if you don't believe that, try it. Well, don't. But you try it, and you will, I tell you, God will not spare the rod because he wants to correct us. Look at this. Don't judge others. Don't judge others. Don't throw what's holy to pearls. Ask and it will be given to you. Your father's there. If you ask for good things, in verse 11, he'll give to you. Beware false prophets, those on the outside that look like God, but on the inside aren't. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. By your fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the powers of the kingdom of heaven. Many will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied and I didn't know you. Whoever hears these words better put them to work and better build their lives on the words that I'm teaching you in the Sermon of the Mount because the rain's coming. The perfect storm is on its way, but those that have built their house on rock will not be removed. But those that do not hear the words of Jesus and build their lives on the worldliness and the things that aren't in the Sermon on the Mount, you are going to be swept away with the rest of those that are unbelieving and unbelievers. Wow. The fear of God. I pray that when we reach that, God is going to put healthy respect in our lives that we that there'll be things we won't even touch now i can't touch that why because god is holy not out of legalism we're not under the law i'm not going to do that i'm not going to act that way i'm not going to react not just because of the spirit's leading and the the law of love but god is too holy god is too great god is too magnificent god is too sovereign to be messed with salvation is not something to be messed with it's to be greeted with reverence awe, and love the very fact that your daddy means that you should give him respect you know when a son when a son asks acts dishonorably he dishonors his father it, it is a shameful thing for a father to be on, dishonored from his son a shameful thing. In fact, the father carries the shame more. But it is a wonderful thing for a father to be honored by his son, physical or spiritual. It is a wonderful. As a father, I'm speaking to the men here today, fathers who are and fathers to be, when your son, okay, daughter as well, but I'm speaking in Bible terms, we're all sons of God. When your son honors you, it's better than anything you could do for yourself. It's better than anything you could project. Your son has honored you. It's, it's better than anything you could do. And when your son dishonors you, it's worse than any shame you could bring upon yourself. This is just an introduction to the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived and still lives. Next week, having heard this, I, I believe that we have created a hunger in us Today, bring a friend. There's still time for them to watch this on the internet next week. Bring a friend. This is not just a nice series. This is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. Father, as we come to your son's greatest sermon, we pray that you by your spirit will do a work in our lives. Bring others to join us, we pray. And start a revolution inside us. Or fan in flames the revolution that is already there. 
that we might live what you died for us to live in, that freedom in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you all.